0: Might as well get those Bibles out. We're gonna dig in. I like digging in. I'm really gonna have to get used to this (laughs) layout. With all right, guys, you're here. You're here. Some people say to picture the audience in their underwear. I never do that. I I find that disrespectful to you. Um, I'm just picturing the audience there. I'm trying to picture the audience in these empty seats. (laughs) Praise the Lord. Thank God we got enough here to change the world right here. we got enough to change the city right here. We're about to read about one man who was such a threat to the kingdom of darkness that they made an oath to have him killed. We're about to read about one man who was such a threat that uh, people were worried that if, if he kept preaching and disciples kept joining with him that the whole world would be shaken. So we have enough here to shake the city. We have enough to change a nation, and I I want you to know the power of a praying church, the power of a believing church, the power of a witnessing church, and uh, let's get get out our Bibles and turn to the book of Acts chapter 23. In Acts 23, we left off with the Apostle Paul being rescued uh, from the crowd, the mob of Jewish leadership. Uh, He was accused of some things that weren't accurate. He was accused of uh, uh, letting a Gentile come into the temple. He was accused of inciting people against uh, the Jewish law. These things weren't true, but uh, one of the things that was true was that he was preaching something that they were threatened by, which was Jesus crucified, risen, the Messiah, and that was a dangerous message. So he had to be rescued from the crowd, and he went back in and ministered to the crowd, Uh, I should, should, minister is probably not the right word. Uh, He testified before the Sanhedrin and uh, was was once again rejected. And so here he's been rescued. He's been taken out by the Roman soldiers and uh, they're about to try to get him to safety, but he's still technically under arrest. So in Acts 23, and we're going to pick up uh, somewhere along where we left off. Uh, we left off in verse 11, but I'll read that again for you. In verse 11, it says, On the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness to my cause at Rome as well. You must witness at as also. And when it was day, the Jews formed a conspiracy, and they bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who had formed this plot. So we understand when it says the Jews, it's not talking about all Jewish people, of course. Number one, the, the Christians of the time still considered themselves Jews themselves. Paul certainly among them. And, and, and we know that 40 people does not make a nation. But it's talking about some of the leadership, some of the influential people. And so 40 people made an oath. We're not going to eat or drink until we've killed Paul. Good question to ask at this point is, did they follow through? Because spoiler alert, they didn't kill Paul. So either they died or they got out of their oath. I, I tend to believe because uh, the elders and the rabbis who wrote the, the kind of the rules and the guidelines around oaths like this did allow for an escape clause, did allow for uh, you to back out of it. Uh, so obviously, I, I don't think they followed through with this oath. I don't think they starved to death or died of thirst, but this was the oath. This is how dedicated and committed they were to seeing the Apostle Paul dead. They bound themselves with an oath. They wouldn't eat a drink until he was dead. It says there were 40 people who formed this plot. More than Sorry, I should say more than 40. They came to the chief priests and the elders and said, we have bound ourselves under a solemn oath to taste nothing until we have killed Paul. Now therefore, you and the council... Notify the commander to bring him down to you, as though you were going to determine his case by a more thorough investigation, and we, for our part, are ready to slay him before he comes near the place. But the son of Paul's sister, his nephew, heard of their ambush, and he came and he entered the barracks, and he told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, lead this young man to the commander, for he has something to report to him. So he took him and he led him to the commander, and he said, Paul, the prisoner called me to him. And he asked me to lead this young man to you since he has something to tell you. We already see the hand of God in this, that somehow God made a way that Paul's nephew overheard of this plot and foiled it in the middle of it. And not only that, but Paul had favor with the commanders, uh, partly because he was a Roman citizen, partly because God granted him favor, that they enabled him to have visitors, that they would listen to him if he said, can you bring this guy to the boss? And his nephew goes and talks to the commander. In verse 19, he says, The commander took him by the hand and, stepping aside, began to inquire of him privately, saying, What is it you have to report to me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down tomorrow to the council, as though they were going to inquire what what more thoroughly about him, somewhat thoroughly more about him. So don't listen to them, for more than 40 of them are lying in wait for him, Who had bound themselves under a curse, not to eat or drink until they slay him. And now they are ready and waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man go, instructing him, saying, Tell no one that you've notified me of these things. And he called to him two of the centurions, and he said, Get 200 soldiers ready by the third hour of the night to proceed to Caesarea with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. They were also to provide mounts to put Paul on and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter having this form: Claudius Lysias, to the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. When this man was arrested by the Jews and was about to be slain by them, I came up to them with the troops and I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And wanting to ascertain the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought, them down to the, brought him down to their council. And I found him to be accused over questions about their law, but under no accusation deserving death or imprisonment. When I was informed that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, also instructing his accusers to bring charges against him before you. So the soldiers, in accordance with their orders, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. But the next day, leaving the horsemen to go on with him, they returned to the barracks. When these had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. When he read it, he asked from what province he was, and when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you hearing after your accusers arrive also, giving orders for him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. So let me give you some background. I'll give you a little historical background real quick, just so you kind of know what's going on. I don't know about you, but when I kind of know, know what's going on historically or even geographically, it helps me to grasp this isn't, this isn't just a story. This happened to a real man, and uh, there's this real intrigue going on here. I mean, this is... This would even make good, a good movie here, what's going on to Paul and how God keeps delivering him. And so here's what happens. Uh, those of you who study uh, biblical history, you might already know this, but for the rest of you, let's, let's just learn this together, that in Jerusalem, Jerusalem was the capital uh, of Judea while Herod the Great was alive because he built his palace there. And Caesar had allowed him to be called King of the Jews as long as he answered to, to Rome. After Herod the Great died, the capital was moved to Caesarea, which as you know is in Samaria. And so that's the capital of this Roman province. So that's where the governor is. That's where Felix is. Felix is called the uh, procurator of, of, of Judea. And what that was was kind of a financial post. He was a financial examiner. And later, Caesar made all the procurators in in provinces like Judea. He turned them into basically a governor. So this guy is governing the province, doing his best. But uh, I'll tell you a little bit more about Felix uh, next time we talk in in a couple of weeks as we read about the trial. But for right now, all you need to know is, is between Jerusalem and Caesarea, there was this uh, military outpost that he stopped at. This is the place that he's... He's gone to, and the middle of the night, they had to take him away. That's how dangerous they knew it was. They sent, look look how many guys they sent with them. If you like military history, you might like this. If if not, bear with us for a moment. (laughs) But here, it it says that they sent, um, let me get to the right place here. They sent 200 soldiers Uh, was 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen. So you can imagine in a city like Jerusalem how dangerous it would be to have that many of your men out of the city. So this was obviously something they thought was really important. Once they get to the military outpost, they send the 200 spearmen back to their outpost in Jerusalem. That's where they should be. But they sent the whole cavalry, all 70 horsemen, stuck with Paul. Obviously, they know he's an important prisoner. Obviously, they know there's somebody really out to kill this guy, and they're taking it seriously. And I believe the hand of God is behind this. The hand of God is keeping Paul safe because he's got a mission. He must go to Rome. You know, when you have a mission, when you have a mission from God, God will see to it as long as you will stay the course and as long as you won't quit and you'll put your faith in God, God will see to it that you get there. God will see to it that your life is protected. God will see to it. I mean, you can look how many plots there were against Paul, and not a thing or a person in the planet could stop him until he writes, I finish my course. When I finish my course, you can chop my head off. But until then, I'm going to testify in Rome. We'll see that. We see that when he gets shipwrecked. We see that when people try to kill him. We see that when he's stoned to death, basically. You see him say, I'm going to finish my mission. I'm going to finish my course. And so this is, this is what exactly what happens. God is using the Romans to protect this man. Now, over and over again, the Romans are saying, we don't know why you're here. Do you see the letter that the centurion wrote? He's done nothing illegal. I don't know why he's still under arrest. But we'll let these Jews deal with it. They'll come and they'll present their case. This is a matter of their law. Now, under Roman law, you couldn't have somebody imprisoned or executed because of a a religious problem. You guys can deal with that how you want to deal with it, but you don't don't get to go killing people. That's why the, the execution of Jesus was so scandalous, and Pilate basically did it to avoid a riot. It was illegal under Roman law to kill a man, so he had to basically frame it as, well, I guess we can... If we report back to Rome why we executed this guy, we'll say it was because he was fomenting treason that he was saying he was a king. But in reality, you and I know that he was killed because he said he was the son of God, because he claimed to be the Messiah. That's why he was killed. So Paul is in the same position. But I want to just ask you a question, and I know that this is a simple question, but why in the world are these people so intent on killing one man, one guy, the reality and the reason is, is, is I, I believe in that, in that trial when he said, I'm on trial for the resurrection. Sure, that served a purpose in that it caused the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees to get at each other's throat because they disagreed about resurrection. But I don't believe he was lying either. I don't believe he lied before God that he was on trial because of resurrection. In light of what we just celebrated this Sunday, I want you to know that resurrection is a dangerous thing. The reality of the resurrection is dangerous, is scandalous. It makes the kingdom of darkness shake. And it is a shame, it would be a shame for us to practice our nice little religion and make it into a religion where we're not acting like there's a living Savior walking amongst us, while we're not acting like there's a living God moving amongst us. For us to act like Jesus is a historical character instead of a living risen Savior is a mess, is a mistake. So here it is, it's scandalous. I want to remind you of what happened. When Jesus got Lazarus up from the dead. When he got Lazarus up from the dead, immediately it says from that moment on, the Jews decided they must kill Jesus. And not long after that, they said, and we got to kill Lazarus too. Resurrection is dangerous. You know, I, I, uh, I want people to like me, just like you do. I'd much rather have God be pleased with me than people. And I hope you feel the same way. As much as we want people to like us, we'd much rather be pleasing to God, right? We have to be okay with the concept that what we believe is polarizing. Right? We should be the most loving people in the city. It's ironic, though, that just because you're the most loving, you also might be the most hated. Isn't that weird? Why? Because you're witnesses. What does the mafia do when they want to shut somebody up and keep somebody out of jail? Kill the witnesses. You know what the enemy wants to do? He wants to kill the witnesses. He can't. He's not going to. Don't worry. He won't get away with it. But shut the witnesses up. Either make them feel so embarrassed that they shut up or make them feel like they'd fit in better if they'd shut up. And if not, if you'll be like Paul, eventually people will try to shut you up with more violent means. I want you to read you something in 1 Corinthians 15. I mean, Lazarus, think about this, guys. I I hate to go back to a point, but no, I don't. I don't mind going back to a point. Uh, Lazarus, think about this guy. His only crime is he died and somebody got him up from the grave. Now he's got a target on his back. What did I do? What did I do wrong? I didn't have anything to do with it. I I was sick. I died. Four days later, I noticed I was wrapped up in a grave, and I was waddling towards Jesus and my sisters. And you want to kill me for this? But you know what? If Lazarus and everybody that witnessed that resurrection had stayed quiet, nobody nobody would have wanted to kill the man. You know when they said they had to kill Lazarus? Word started spreading. You know, when I read, and we talked about this on Palm Sunday, but when I read about that original triumphant entry, in the book of John it tells us that one of the things that the crowds were talking about the most was Lazarus getting up from the dead. That witness of the resurrection was a dangerous thing to the powers that were, because resurrection proves He is who He says He is. In 1 Corinthians 15, we are confronted with the case for the resurrection. Because what was being preached amongst the Corinthians, not necessarily by their leadership, but by those that had been creeping in, one of the doctrines that had been preached was that there was no resurrection. To some, that meant that nobody, not even Christ, was resurrected. To some, that meant that maybe Jesus was somehow resurrected, but we won't be. But the reality is Jesus was resurrected and we will be resurrected. We have been spiritually resurrected and you will be bodily resurrected. I believe that with all my heart. I believe that, the, that he has died to redeem and he will create a new heaven and a new earth and he will create a new body for you because the Bible says it very clearly. This is not the last time you'll have a body. And You lay a body down, he'll raise it up and it will be glorified. Your new body will not suffer death or decay. Thank God for that. Your new body will be spiritual and natural all at once. We'll be able to partake in the immortal. But look at this, what it says in 1 Corinthians 15:1, I make known to you, brethren. This is why the guy was dangerous. He didn't shut up. He made known what he knew. He made known what he'd seen. Can I just make an obvious point? A witness is not merely somebody that's seen something. It's somebody that sees something and is willing to say something. You're not a witness because you saw something. You're a witness because you said something about it. The Lord has called us to be His witnesses. What did He say? In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Doesn't say you guys are going to learn so much someday you're going to teach, even though we we do teach. Your prime one of the main missions is that we would witness. What does witnessing mean? I saw something, I know someone, I've experienced something. I want to tell you, I know he's alive, I've seen him alive, I've seen his hand move. I know that Jesus is alive, and I'm witnessing to the fact that he rose from the grave. That's what's most dangerous. Do you realize that the world is full of people preaching religion? The world is full of people with different philosophies. But how many of them can say, I saw my Lord and Savior. He's alive. And you might say, well, I've never seen him with my eyes. I've never seen him. Some of you say, I did. I've did. i had a vision of Jesus. Some of you say, I never have. But whichever camp you fall into, you know he's alive. Do you know he's alive because someone told you? Or do you know he's alive because you've experienced his resurrection power in your life? You were dead, but now you live. You were blind, but now you see. You were lost, but now you're found. You know there's a difference. You know there's a difference between what you were and what you are. You know that something changed, and that information, that knowledge is dangerous. Because you're not just saying, I found this cool new religion. Hey, we do fun stuff at church. Hey, we got great people. You're saying, I have experienced the power and the life that comes only through Jesus Christ. And I want you to be saved and resurrected yourself. You're dead, but you can live. That is a powerful thing. Look what he says. I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you're saved. I don't want to make the mistake of going too fast through that. Look at what he says. This gospel, I preached it. This gospel you received. This gospel is, what, is how you're able to stand. And it's by this gospel that you're saved. So which gospel? What is he talking about? If you hold fast... The word that I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as first importance what I also received. So this, this, what he's about to say, is what you've received. It's what you're standing in and standing on. And it's what you're saved by. Here it is. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried, and that we was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That, that message right there should be preached, should be received, should be standed, stood on, stand it on, should be stood on, and it's that gospel, it's that message that you're saved by. If you know nothing else, know this, that Christ was crucified for our sins, just like the prophet said he would be that Christ was buried in the ground and he was dead when they buried him and that in th- on the third day he rose just like the Scriptures said he would. If that's all we know, that's enough. Don't stop there. God wants you to grow, right? But boy, that's enough to shake the planet right there. Don't stop there. Grow by the word. Grow in the word. But this is the foundation of everything we believe. This is what we stand on. This is what we're saved by. And it says that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Some of you might pronounce it Cephas. And it says after this he appeared to more than... So we're talking about Peter, by the way. That's his Aramaic name was Cephas or Cephas. Uh, That's just another name for Peter. It says then he appeared to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brethren at a time, at one time. Most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the disciples, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Well, he's, he's making it known to you, we talked about this a little while ago, but he's making it known to you that this is not just a story a few people made up, that when Jesus rose from the grave, he appeared not only to some women he, who aren't named here, but he appeared to... Uh, Peter, he appeared to James, he appeared to the, the 12 disciples, he appeared to more than 500 people at a time, most of whom, he says, you can, you can still talk to them about it because they're still alive. Some have gone ahead and, and gone the way of the grave, some are with Jesus, they've fallen asleep, but most of them are alive, and he says, he appeared to me too. Here's what's dangerous about that, is these people won't stop talking about what they've seen, they won't stop talking about the reality that Jesus is alive. He says this is how you know and this is how we are convinced this is not just a story this is just not just a cleverly devised fable that the fact is he's alive there's a reason he's having to defend this because it's under attack and to this day guys it's under attack it's even under attack amongst Christianity in some places the truth of the resurrection and the power of the resurrection. But I know that you know and we, we are going to declare till our last breath, Jesus is alive. Yeah. He's here. He works. He's not a passive God. He's an active God. Yeah. It's that gospel that's able to save. That he died and he rose again. I, I've said this before, so forgive my repetition. But it's interesting that he mentions a few of these by name. He mentions Peter. He mentions James. James, not the disciple James, but James, the brother of Jesus. Who, if you remember correctly, it was James who was one of Jesus' brothers that the gospels tell us when Jesus was alive did not even believe. Isn't that weird? A little odd that this man grew up with a sinless brother. A brother, I mean, I guess that could have been annoying, couldn't it? (laughs) The perfect brother that that dear Mary is always saying, you know, why don't you be more like Jesus? See, you don't mind saying why don't you be more like Jesus because we have received him as our Savior. Imagine him as your older brother. That might have been tough. (laughs) And he gets away with wandering off as a 12-year-old and sticking around in the temple while his family heads back home. And uh, James, it says, James and his brothers, and this is the problem with familiarity. James and his brothers, during Jesus' ministry, didn't believe in Jesus. But something happened. Because we find out in the book of Acts that this James becomes a major leader in the church. There is a book in your Bible right now that's written by the man. And we find out through church history that he was a very important leader in the church, and he was on fire for Jesus. We find out that his, most likely, if you believe the history, most likely he died shouting the gospel from the rooftop before he was pushed off the roof, to which he rolled over on his knees and began to pray for those that pushed him until he was clubbed over the head. That's how he ended his old, old, long-yeared life, was preaching the gospel from rooftops till the end of his life. What takes a guy who doesn't even believe to this guy? What changes that man so drastically? Jesus appeared to him resurrected. That power of the resurrection. And for the rest of his life, he couldn't shut up about it. You know, where were the disciples? We talked about this on Sunday a little bit. But where were the disciples immediately after Jesus was crucified? They were hiding. Their doors were locked. They were hiding until Jesus appeared. And then not 50 days later, they get up in front of thousands in the most dangerous city for them in the world. In the city that killed their Savior. In the city that said, if you even have the same accent as him, you're under suspicion. And that city, they stand up side by side. And don't just preach a pansy message, but say, you crucified him. And thank God he's offering you another chance what changed those men? Number one, you could say, well, it's the power of the Spirit. They got filled with the Spirit. But the first thing that changed them was the, just—it was seeing Jesus alive. And Jesus himself breathed into them and said, receive the Spirit. Mm-hmm. That interaction with the risen Savior, they were never the same. Like we said on Sunday, this is the greatest proof of the resurrection. I've got books on my shelf that document the historical, archaeological, uh, secular sources that corroborate the fact that the Bible is accurate, that Jesus was a a living person, that he died, and that there's even evidence for his resurrection. We've got books about it. You can tell your friends, you can give them these books, but you know what? Nothing's going to convince them as much as a witness to the resurrection. And in that day and age... It wasn't the scholarly evidence that convinced people. What was the most convincing fact of the resurrection was that all of these people that we just mentioned would not deny, even upon threat of death, imprisonment, torture, they could not and would not deny that he was alive. And we saw him with our eyes. Isn't that powerful? More than 500 people Yeah, that's right, he's shouting out. More than 500 people saw Jesus alive. More than 500 people were witnesses to it. And not one of them later said, no, I could have been mistaken. If it's a scam, it doesn't last that long. And like we said on Sunday, if it's a scam, scams are supposed to help you, not hurt you. You kind of give up your scam when people threaten you with death. Or when people say, well, we'll torture you. You say, okay, you know what, I was just trying to get some... Some free money. (laughs) Forget that. I was trying to get some free tickets to Disney. Forget that. Uh, You know what? I'm going to go back to, to what I was doing before. The con failed. It wasn't a con. These men could not deny. These men and women could not deny what they'd seen. The greatest proof of the resurrection were the witnesses. Now, you might say, well, I wish we had some of them here today. But you are just as much a witness of the resurrection as they were. You say, well, they saw it with their eyes. Well, what have you seen? Mm -hmm. Do we dare be like John's disciples who say, are you the one or should we wait for another? To which Jesus' response was, look around you. Mm -hmm. The blind see. The dead are raised. The lame receive back their ability to walk. Does that answer your question? Mm -hmm. And to those that kept looking for signs, even after he'd even raised the dead, multiplied food for thousands, Mm -hmm. he said to you, you're never going to get another sign. The reason is, is because if this wasn't enough, nothing will be. I want to ask you, have you encountered the risen Savior? I believe in every one of your mouths, the answer should be yes. Look around you. It's not just what you've seen in other people's lives. What have you seen in your own life? You've been changed. You've been resurrected yourself. You know that he's alive. So you are the most dangerous piece of evidence you are the proof of the resurrection. You're the proof that Jesus is alive. Ask yourself a question. What's going to convince your family more that Jesus is alive? Is it that old dusty book that has some archaeological evidence? Fine, use it. That's cool. I got, I'm all for that. But I don't think that's going to do more than the fact that they knew who you were and they know who you are now. It doesn't change the fact that you love them unconditionally, even when they treat you badly because of what you believe. Even, even in the midst of great persecution, you stand up and you say, I know in whom I have believed, and I know that he is faithful and able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. When you face even your death someday, when you have lived a good life, and you're on your way to see Jesus, and you face that with boldness and confidence and joy, you're a witness to the resurrection. And that is a dangerous thing. Why were they so eager to get Paul dead? Was it because he was a teacher teaching wrong things? Sure, he was a teacher. But what was more dangerous than a teacher? They'd had lots of teachers preaching wacky doctrines. And they had Greeks saying these things. And they had weird Jewish teachers saying these things. Why kill this guy? They didn't try to kill all the other ones. Why kill this one? He was a witness. He was a living witness. Not only that, but he was one of them. He was one of them. And that was dangerous because they said, you know, he's not some foreigner that we can just say this is a foreign thing. He, He was one of us. And he turned. What changed Paul? What changed Paul? An encounter with the risen Christ, an encounter on that road with the risen Savior. You see, it's interesting in 1 Corinthians 15 that he counts himself amongst those that saw Jesus physically resurrected. Isn't that interesting? Whether he's talking about the road or whether he's talking about another experience, he considers himself, he considers his encounter with Jesus just as real as those who were there the days after Jesus rose from the dead before he ascended. I want to remind you, Paul wasn't there in the room when Jesus appeared to them. Paul wasn't on that boat when Jesus made him fish for breakfast. Paul wasn't there when Jesus went in the sky. So how is he able to say, I saw him? Now, I'm sh- I know, we know by Scripture that he saw him. Jesus appeared to him. But the reality of Jesus was so real to him that he considered himself a witness to the risen Savior. I saw him. Last to me. Now, I'm sure his was, seemed just as real. And you know what? He could have. Jesus could have very well have physically appeared to him. But I also believe that you all are witnesses of the resurrection. Whether or not you've seen Jesus with your physical eyes, you have seen him. What does Peter say? Though we have not seen him, we know him. And we love him. We believe in him. You know him. See, I'm convinced that the world does not need to know how much you know about Jesus. They need to know that you know Jesus. It's good to know stuff about Jesus. But I know stuff about George Washington. I know stuff about Caesar Augustus. But I know Jesus. And I'm not ashamed to tell you I know him. And it, I, the reason I'm not ashamed is because it doesn't make me any better than you because you know him too. We can know a bunch of stuff about our celebrities. Our celebrities. Our celebrities. We can know a bunch of stuff about your favorite sports star, but we know Jesus. He has appeared to us. He walks amongst us. He rescued you from death, and that's dangerous. It's dangerous. I want you to be not just a teacher, not just a student. I want you to be a witness. A witness is the most dangerous thing to the kingdom of darkness because a witness you can say, I, I disagree with your sources. You can say, I, dis- I, I, don't, I don't believe that uh, you're reading that right. But boy, you know what you can't deny? You can't deny somebody that says, you know what? I don't know. I may not know everything. I may not be as educated as you, but I know something. I was dead, and I'm alive. Some of the most successful preachers of the gospel, and I'm not talking about People who do it full t- as a full-time job. I'm talking about people who preach, whether they're at work, whether they're at home, whether they're at school. Some of the most successful preachers of gospel that I've met have been the most straightforward. This is how it is. I'm not trying to twist you into an argument. I'm just going to tell you, my life is proof Jesus is alive. We know him. We've seen him. Those 40 guys were so riled up. That they made an oath, we're not going to eat until the guy's dead. That's dedication. How many of you would take an oath like that about something else? I mean, obviously not to kill somebody because we'd have to have a little prayer meeting. <laughs> How many of you would be so so fired up about something you say I'm not going to eat until this happens? That'd have to be pretty important, wouldn't it? Most people don't have that that energy towards something, you know, towards their own life and family, like let alone some other guy that, that they, I mean, that, that is a lot of hate. That's a motivating hate. Where did that come from? I'll tell you what it came from. I believe that everywhere these apostles and these disciples and these regular believers that were willing to preach the gospel, everywhere these guys went, the kingdom of darkness was terrified. Because as Jesus said, when he first sent out those 70, he said, as you went, I was watching Satan fall from heaven. Just watching him like stars falling out of the sky. I was watching his kingdom fall. I was watching his kingdom crumble in front of my eyes. And can you imagine? how Satan has an empire built up, how the kingdom of darkness is, is so established and city by city, it's crumbling and it's being destroyed in front of their eyes because people are walking around with like less than three years of knowledge in most cases, at least when the church began. Time has passed by now, but when the church began, less than three years of knowledge. The guys had been filled with the Spirit for days. Days. And that's dangerous enough that they have to try to kill him. I I don't have a death wish by any stretch of the imagination. I'm not afraid of death. I look forward to seeing Jesus. But I don't have a death wish. But I do want to be a great threat to the kingdom of darkness. Do you know what I'm saying? I'm not looking for people to try to kill me. I really am not. And I'm not even saying that would happen. I'm not here telling you if somebody's not trying to kill you, you're doing it wrong. I'm not saying that at all. (laughs) <laughs> but are you a threat? Because you know in our society, they don't handle it the same way these guys did. They don't handle it by trying to kill you. They handle it by trying to shame you. Many of us fear public ostracizing. Ostracize, ostracize. You know the word I'm going for, ostracizing. <laughs> Many of us fear that more than we fear death. In this day and age, You get it on social media. You get the media, the the mainstream media getting a hold of it. And it's worse to some people than just dying. You have to be aware of the tools that the enemy uses today. Probably nobody's going to try to kill you in Canada. But there are going to be people that try to shame you, push you to the borders, to the edges where you feel like you don't fit in or to make you feel like you're doing something wrong. And as long as you are walking in the love and the truth of our Savior Jesus Christ, don't stop because you're finally making a dent. Mm-hmm. I remember reading an account. and We'll close right away here. I remember reading an account of a man who was in the artillery division in World War II in the Pacific. And as you know, the war in the Pacific was just it was brutal. It was tough. Jungle warfare. Uh, it was, you know, you, a lot of times the enemies would, enemy would be high, lying in wait to ambush you, but they had some battles at night where you didn't know where the enemy was. So what they'd do is, this guy was in the mortar division, so he would, you know, he's not way back. I said artillery, but the artillery is usually way back here, but he's in the mortar, so he's a little bit further up in the lines. And they'd thunk. They'd launch these mortars, and you wouldn't know if you're hitting anything, especially at night, because all you see is, Whoa. you just see a, you know, explosion. But he said, we would just keep moving until somebody started shooting back at us. Then we knew we were hitting something. When someone started shooting back at us, we were finally getting fired at. We knew we were finally hitting the mark. I'm not looking for trouble. But I am going to say this. If you've never encountered any opposition, whether it's spiritual or actual people, sometimes it's not people. Sometimes it's just an attack on you. Sometimes the enemy attacks you with discouragement, depression, fatigue. Sometimes it's people that really give you the hard time. If you've never experienced that, you might want to check if, you're, if your aim's on the right point. Because when you're a threat, there's going to be an attack on you, but I am confident that greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. And you've got nothing to fear. And the Bible says that if you put on the full armor of God, even in the evil day, you will be able to stand, you will be able to resist, and you will be able to quench every fiery dart of the evil one. That's my confidence today. There's not an attack on you that can prosper. No weapon formed against you will prosper. And every tongue that rises in judgment against you, you will condemn. I believe that Jesus is with you. I'm not here looking for trouble. But I am looking to destroy, just like Jesus Because Jesus was manifest here to destroy the works of the devil. And I want to see his work and his kingdom destroyed in our city. And I want to see his work and his kingdom destroyed in our nation. And if we're making a dent, you're a target because you're a witness. I want you to know you're dangerous. And I mean that as the highest form of compliment. You are dangerous. Be dangerous again. What's most dangerous is somebody who's a witness, a living witness. That's who you try to shut up. You don't try to shut up the person that's learned every argument in the book. You don't try to shut up the guy who who thinks he's the smartest in the room. You try to shut up the person who actually saw something. What have you seen? What have you heard? And I'm going to say what Jesus said. Blessed are your eyes for seeing what they see. And blessed are your ears for hearing what they've heard. Blessed are you for knowing the Savior. Don't keep that blessing to yourself. Spread it around. Be dangerous. Be a witness. Be a witness of the resurrection. The resurrection is polarizing, but it is the foundation of what we believe. It's what we stand on. The cross and the resurrection is what we stand on. It's what we're saved by. Praise the Lord. Something worth dying for, something worth living for even more. Amen? Stand up with me. Oh, I'm happy that Jesus is alive. Praise God. I've been convinced, guys. I've been convinced by the evidence that he's alive. But when that evidence falls short, I've been convinced because I know him and the power of his resurrection in my life. I've seen him. You couldn't talk me out of it, guys. You could stick me in a brainwashing camp and, and, and tell me I'm wrong a million times. You can, you can I mean, it does not matter. I, we know what we know. We've seen him. Yeah. Guys, I want to tell you if, you, if you just feel like all you've got to show for your faith is a good argument, that's not enough. Do you know him and the power of his resurrection? Do you know him? Because knowing him makes you the greatest proof of the resurrection. You are the greatest proof of the resurrection. Lord, we thank you. You're alive.